The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Core TV podcast, I'm joined by renowned forensics expert Joseph Scott Morgan as we look deeper into the story of Gabby Petito, the circumstances surrounding her death, and the hunt for her fiancé, Brian Laundrie. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Hey, Court TV fans, it's producer Dave, and I want you to check out True Crime Week on Stitcher, where they are kicking off the spookiest month of the year with the creepiest and crawliest true crime podcasts. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading the Court TV podcast and sharing it with friends. Uh, This week on the podcast, we're talking not so much about a trial or anything that's happening in court yet, uh, but it's the case that everyone around the nation is following. And it's the death of Gabby Petito and the search for Brian Laundrie, her fiance slash boyfriend. It's a story that has broken through on many levels. But what I want to do uh, during the course of this podcast is dive a little bit deeper than most are and get into what it is going to take into in the investigation of the death of Gabby Petito to get a case ready to bring inside of a courtroom. And then we'll talk about the, the search of, uh, for Brian Laundrie as well and what it will take to find him. Uh, he, there is an arrest warrant out for him. So uh, at whatever point someone finds him, spots him, takes him into custody, uh, he'll be facing charges already. But those charges, I just want to point this out at the top, are not homicide, have nothing to do with the death of Gabby Petito. No one has been charged in that, and we're still waiting to get some information. Uh, but I've got a great guest to help us through all of this today, and and that's the only way we can do what we're going to be doing here on the podcast this week. Joseph Scott Morgan is with me, former death investigator of the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office and other places, is now a um, professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University in Alabama, uh, has his own podcast called Body Bags. So uh, we appreciate uh, Joseph Scott Morgan joining us today. Great to see you, Joseph. Hey, you bet, Vin. Always good to be with you, my friend. So this, I want to start with the the homicide and the death of Gabby Petito. And there are two dates uh, from my perspective that I want to start with. Uh, August 27th, which from everything that I've read and people I've talked to and, and every interview and every Every piece of information that's come out seems to be a significant date in the last time uh, Gabby Petito may have been alive. And September 19th, which is when her remains were found in the Grand Teton National Forest. Um, So let me ask you, um, August 27th, if that's when she dies, September 19th, when her remains are found, that's 23 days in that environment. Describe for us what what is happening uh, to her remains during that time. Well, uh, just like any other biological process, you know, it's uh, um, you know her body is is breaking down. I mean, there's no other there's really no other way to to frame it. You know, people would like to you know uh, you know kind of uh, cloak this in niceties. It's not. This is a very ugly ugly event, man. And uh, you know, and you and I have covered a lot of cases. This. This ranks right up there as far as I'm concerned, because the last day that we kind of have an idea 
of where she was or where they were was, like you said, back on the 27th. Okay, so we've we've got her. We've got the van. Remember, the vloggers came by and actually, uh, you know, made note of that. When uh, this lady goes back and looks her her video log, she sees it. You know, she. So we we know that the van was there. Ergo, we have to assume that she was probably there as well. And do you recall that's the day? Also, if I remember correctly, where they, both Gabby and Laundry, were at the restaurant prior to that, where he had the altercation. You know, it was claimed that he had gone back into the restaurant like four times. She came in, you know, like apologizing for Laundry's behavior. So we have that date pegged, but after that, she just kind of falls falls off the face of the planet, and so. When in forensics and medical legal death investigation in particular, one of the things we look to are changes in the body. We do that in the short term, you know, where we're looking for, you know, things like, you know, rigor mortis and liver mortis and all those things that we talk about. But when you get out past, you know, a few days and you start to go down this road where you're looking at, you know, you're saying 20 plus days now, now you're talking about what's referred to as decompositional artifact. And that's going to be brought about by weather, by exposure to weather. It's going to be brought about as a result of uh, insect activity, which, you know, uh, you know, they have a progression um, and any kind of animal activity that might be taking taking place. That's that scavenger activity. And, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, as a body lays lays out there, uh, you know, after I guess it's probably after about 12 hours any energy your body has generated during life is completely des- uh, uh, is gone after death. So you're an in- inanimate object at that point. So you're subject to temperature rising and falling, just like the surroundings in your environment. In her case, you know, we're talking, think about the ground, uh, or think about the rocks around her, the trees. So as the sun rises, as the sun sets, yeah, body temperature is going to change, you know, day to day. Wind blows, cooling, relative humidity, barometric pressure, all that stuff comes into play, not to mention uh, every now and then you'll get a rainstorm. So all of this stuff is impactful. And, you know, what they're faced with right now, uh, you know, at the coroner's office, and one of the reasons I believe it's taken so long is because the evidence that was left behind relative to her death has been diminished. I don't want to use the word compromised because that implies some kind of nefarious behavior. It's been diminished because of these changes that are taking place. So after 23 days, what could you potentially learn? Because they did initially say, you know, there's cause of death and manner of death. They said manner of death (laughs) is homicide. Yeah, you're right. How how significant is that finding? and, And how do you make that determination without necessarily determining the cause of death. Okay. I'm going to go there. Uh, <laughs> when, when you have, and I've, I've described it kind of like this, Finn, when you, when you have a, a coroner uh, that comes out of the door of the coroner's office, out of the autopsy suite, um, and they immediately release a statement the same day uh, as the autopsy, where they say that this is, in fact, a homicide, um, they saw a lot. So 
you know, let's think about the cast of characters that are there. Uh, you've probably got some peripheral forensic scientists there, and I have no way of knowing who was there. But since she's been down, there's a probability that you could have had a forensic anthropologist, maybe an odontologist, which is a dentist. You might even have an entomologist. Remember, the, the FBI is involved in this, and all they have to do is reach out to the resources at the Smithsonian. You know, you think about the silence of lambs and, you know, that scene where they're going to see the entomologist there, where she's going to see the entomologist. Those people, anthropologists at a federal level and also at a uh, at a federal level, they're housed at the Smithsonian. So you've got forensic anthropologists there. You've got forensic entomologists. You've got those people there. And then you've got the FBI evidence response team that's there at post. And I I would betting money on the fact that they were there assisting in collection of evidence off of her remains. And the reason I'm telling you all this, not to mention, <laughs> let's don't forget the forensic pathologist. All of these people were standing around the table, right, man, after they're completing this autopsy. And they've, they've borne witness to everything that was brought in from the scene. They came to a conclusion uh, that what they saw uh, was a homicide. And the term that is generally thrown around in the medical legal world is what's referred to as evidence of homicidal violence. You know, and that's, you know, when you think about that, and I'm not saying that this is what happened, but it's so glaring, you would have to have obvious evidence of uh, trauma uh, to perhaps, perhaps the head, the neck, and that could involve any number of things, blunt force, you know, impact injuries, um, you can have sharp force injuries, which involve knives or any kind of milled blade, uh, chopping injuries. Um, you can have things like, uh, manual or ligature strangulation, which would leave evidence on the neck. And then and of let course, me ask you, yeah, yeah, even yeah. after how much of that after 23 days? Uh, well, okay. Would be let's, a, would be let's a, just, let's just, let's just say this. Okay. Let me say this. The tissue surrounding the injuries, obviously, is going to be compromised, but you know what's not? A bone. And so if you've got this horrible injury, and I've seen these before, where you've gone downrange chronologically, you know, after homicidal trauma or homicidal violence, and say someone's skull was crushed, unless scavengers... And I'm sorry to be so graphic, but unless scavengers have taken away bits of that skull or the remainder of the skull, um, you're going to have evidence of fracturing. And that fracturing has to come about as a result of blunt force trauma, like a head being crushed, that sort of thing. That's not going to diminish at all. Now, you'll you'll what you will lose is the soft tissue that's kind of overlying that area. You're going to miss things like uh, what we refer to as little uh, focal areas of hemorrhage. And that you know, anybody that's listening to this, just think about any time you get a bruise, all right? You get a bruise on your arm, you know, you walk into a piece of furniture, bump into the wall, you know, your kids, if you have kids, you've seen them come in, they're all banged up and whatnot, what kids normally do. Those are points of, of impact. Um, and that's hemorrhage. You, you can still see that sometimes there'll even be uh, underlying staining on the bone itself when you're talking about this. But I don't know that she was because I don't have, we don't have enough info at this point in time, but I don't know that she was diminished enough that all of that would be gone. I can't imagine any scenario where it would be because it takes a lot longer than 
even 22 days for a body to fully skeletonize. You know, that's just, it doesn't happen at that rate. You know, we, you know, you can still go out on cases uh, that I've worked over my years in Atlanta and New Orleans where you'll, you know, you'll have a, a person that was down for six months and you'd still have some evidence of tissue there. Okay. So 22 days, body will be compromised, but it's not going to be to the point where there is no soft tissue left. It's just going to be more difficult to interpret it. Um, the one thing that we forgot about that I, I, I failed to mention was also gunshot wounds. That's the thing. But, you know, I don't have any evidence at this point. Maybe the FBI does or somebody else, some law enforcement agency that he was in possession of a firearm. I have no idea. But then, you know, gee whiz, man. I mean, we've covered so many of these really, really intimate, violent cases. Um, you know, when it comes to if and laundry is not a suspect, I have to frame it by this, but if we're just going with the scenario that this is an intimate, an intimate death uh, among intimates, you and I both know that the level of violence in cases like this rises to a point that most people in, in outside of the world that we kind of inhabit can't even begin to fathom some of the injuries that you begin to see because it's so, it's so very violent. It's up close. It's personal. There's a lot of rage involved. It's emotional. In yeah, it is. It's it, it's completely emotionally driven. Yeah, it, it's emotionally charged. Yeah, it's reactive. And, it's a reactive event, and sometimes, and that's when you get into things like, uh, you know, we always people always hear this term of overkill, you know, and that's that's a real thing, you know, when it's it's driven by passion. Yeah, you know, there's anger, you know, and Lord only knows what you know what what anger you know, there may or may not have been, but that all, all that stuff has to be factored in from a scientific standpoint. Now it's, it's up to the homicide investigators to fill in the blanks relative to the relationship narrative and all that stuff. It really, all we can do is present the physical evidence that we can and try to uh, frame it in, in true, um, true uh, foundational forensic science and present that to them, you know, give them things like, you know, how, how long has, has this individual been down? Well, that's, that's a significant piece of information. I mean, been looking for, for, you know, weeks that that's how all this started, you know, where's Gabby, where's exactly. Gabby, you know? How, yeah. So there you go. Let me ask you this. How precise will they be with cause of death here? I mean, could you mm -hmm. see a scenario where, the cause of death is more vague than precise in knowing exactly what caused her death, even though they would be convinced it was it was homicide and not an accident, not natural causes. Yeah, I, I got to say, OK, in certain cases, particularly when it comes to bodies that have been down for a protracted period of time. And in the whole grand scheme of things, this is not a protracted period of time. In my world, it's not. Okay, this this is more recent, you know, because we have to deal with cases where we've got bodies that are completely skeletonized. You've got remains that are scattered to the wind. I would, I'm going to list more towards specificity in this case, and this is why I go back to what I earlier said. They they ran. <laughs> out of that door, metaphorically, of course, to give us a manner of death. And you don't do that in cases where you don't have some kind of glaring evidence. And it was, it was striking. I, I got to tell you, um, I was 
uh, I was surprised. I'm not going to say shocked, but I, I was surprised, you know, that we just. You weren't expecting it. No, and you I think we expecting. had this conversation. I was, I was, yep. I was surprised that we got a manner that quickly. And for folks that don't know, I like to educate everywhere I go, just so you understand everybody. Manner is different than cause and manner, manner, you know, there's only five and, you know, it's homicide, suicide, accidental, undetermined and natural. So if you, if you think of those five manners, it's like a, a gigantic umbrella, every cause, you know, gunshot wound or heart attack, or, you know, pick your poison, whatever it is can fall beneath that umbrella in multiple categories, you know, gunshot wound can be suicide, accidental homicide. Okay. For instance, um, you know, so we've got a manner, we've got this manner of homicide, which means, you know, and unlike an attorney, no offense, Vin, uh, unlike an attorney, I hate, I despise the word murder. It's, it's a lawyer's word. It's very theatrical. And I like the word homicide because it's got a, it's very clinical and essentially how, how it's defined. And folks need to understand this from a scientific standpoint, because this is a clue. When you hear a coroner or medical examiner that says homicide, classically, that definition for that word is specifically death at the hands of another. And that's what that means. Okay. So that, that is significant. And let's frame it like that. They came out of that door and they said, this is a homicide. In other words, what they're saying is this is the, this is a death that was at the hands of another. And now they've got to figure out who that other is. I, I want to play because you, you outlined a little bit of that, that timeline. And I think that timeline is significant. They're having lunch and there's, there is some there's a scene. Uh, uh, Brian Laundry causes a scene, and, and other people there, including the restaurant, has confirmed this that on the 27th during lunch, uh, there are some arguments, some yelling, uh, reports that he's going in and out of the restaurant. Gabby is apologizing oh. for him, but there is absolute anger yeah. and tension. Then we know, as you pointed out, that red, white, and Bethune uh, YouTubers mm -hmm. um, on their video, you see the white van that Gabby and Brian had been driving. 31 miles away from where they had lunch. Yep. And that is the general area, we believe, very close to where her remains were ultimately recovered. So in that 31-mile drive, I'm wondering what's going on in that van. And I, and I think the only place where we got a potential clue as to what may have been going on was from the body cam footage of August 12th. Mm of the officers speaking to Brian and Gabby on the side of the road after someone else called about another scene that the two had been causing right. um, outside of this, this um, coffee shop slash co-op. Mm, yeah. And I want to play a little piece of that because there was some new body cam that was released, much clearer audio, and you have a much more precise picture of what's going on between this young couple. Let's listen. Kind of looks like something like hit you in the face. And then over on your arm, shoulder, right here. There's, that's new, huh? It's kind of a new mark. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Can I see the other side of your face? So, what happened here and here? Um, I, I'm not sure it was a... So the backpack gotcha. So there's two people that came to us and told us that they saw him hit you. There's two people saying that they saw him punch you. We're just independent witnesses by Moonflower. Well, to be honest, I definitely hit him first. Where'd you hit him? 
I slap him in the face. You, you slapped him first? And then what, just on his face? He gets cool to shut up. How many times did you slap Bravo, him? Bravo, Romeo, India, Alpha. Just a couple. And then what, and his reaction was to do what? Yeah, yeah. He just grabbed you? Yeah. Did he... Did he hit you though? I mean, I mean, it's okay if you're saying you hit him, and then I, I understand if he hit you, but we want to know the truth if he actually hit you. Because oh, you guess, know. I guess, yeah, but I hit him first. Where did he hit you? Don't, don't worry, just well, be he, honest. He like, grabbed my face, like, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, he didn't like hit me in the face, like he didn't like punch me in the face or anything. Did he slap but, your face or what? Well, like he like, grabbed me like with his nail, and I guess that's why it was. I definitely have a cut right here. It's like a peel. Yeah. It's actually burns. Okay. Joseph Scott Morgan. This is his classic, from my perspective, classic domestic violence. You've got uh, the female minimizing her injuries. The backpack hit me. Or, or he didn't really hit me. I hit him first. No matter how you how you want to interpret exactly what happened, this is a volatile situation with two young people, high tension, high emotions, and we know that after an angry lunch, they're in this little white van together for a 31-mile drive to the place where her remains are, are found. And, and this, what we just listened to, is two weeks before that angry lunch. Yeah, I, I got to tell you something. For, there's two pieces of this. I'm, I'm going to give you a little piece, and then I'm going to drop drop some knowledge on you that I've come across. First one, any grown man that would strike any, any woman, first off, in a public venue and would feel comfortable with doing that. And remember that call came in then where uh, the 9-11 caller came, you know, said he's, he's hitting her, he's slapping her you know, out in the middle, you know, what, what kind of comfort level do you have to arrive at at that point where you're willing to raise your hand to a woman and not just a woman, but the woman you allegedly love, you've been engaged to, you've been on this journey with, it's just supposed to be this grand epic journey. And secondly, she, she's 95 pounds, man. Okay. And, you know, you begin to think about how, how comfortable do you have to be in your own skin in order to, let's face it, perpetrate that act if if this is true, based on what the 911 caller said. Now, let me let me throw out a little bit more knowledge here. Something that has come to mind for me. I there is a video that's floating around out there of them. I don't know if you saw this. It's uh, them surfing the dunes in uh, on the sand out in Colorado. Now this is several days back. There is, and I'd urge any, don't believe me, don't believe me, F- look for it yourself. There is an image where you see her back, and she's about to go down the hill on the slide. Um, look at her right shoulder blade. She's wearing a spaghetti top. Her right shoulder blade. Uh, there is kind of a, a distant shot, and then there's a close-up shot. She's got what appear to be these areas that in my mind, at least looking at this grainy video that appear to be bruises Wow, that are there on her right shoulder blade. So the reason this is significant Vin, is that if we continue with this line of logic, that if this is an ongoing abuse event, okay, 
with all of these cases, because you're a prosecutor, you know how this works. With all of these cases, you have individuals that they just don't, these people don't just start, man. It's just not like, oh, you know, just falls from heaven that I've decided rises from hell that I've decided that I'm, I'm going to start beating the hell out of a 95 year old, uh, 95, forgive me, 95 pound girl. It doesn't just like, you know, pop into your mind. This is something that you feel comfortable with. So how do you know, well, Morgan, where are you going with this? Well, I'll tell you where I'm going with it. I'm going back to the morgue with it. Because if I have this information, one of the things I'm doing, I'm going to go back and I'm going to attempt to assess any kind of old injuries. Because, you know, in cases, let me give you a great example. When we have cases involving, say, for instance, child abuse, one of the things we know about child abusers is that they will use hands, they'll use belts, that sort of thing to strike defenseless children. You get these welts, you get bruises. One of the things that happens, Vin, is that you get this, uh, what I call layering of injury. So if you, if you have like a belt strike, you'll have one from four days ago. The kid, for whatever reason, makes their abuser angry again to take the belt out and place they're used to go into strikes them over that area. Well, the initial strike will be at a different, uh, a different degree of resolution. It'll be resolving. And then you put new injuries on top of that. So all I saw was the right shoulder blade. Maybe it's just a shadow, but I saw multiple of them in various locations and they're about the size of a quarter. All right. So I don't know if they were able to appreciate that at autopsy. For all I know, it was a shadow, but I'm betting, man, I'd say that they weren't. So I have to ask this question. Yeah, everybody's outdoorsy. You know, everybody likes to hike and everybody likes to sand surf or whatever, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, how do you get those points of impact? Because they're specific. It's not like a, a gigantic bruise. You know, like if you come crashing through the door and you land on your shoulder, these are, these are specific. And they're, like I said, about they're coin sized. And so, you know, you begin to think about that and you think, hmm, well, I wonder because that's that's the only bare skin that I see in that image. Lord only knows what else what, is there. What could be, what what else could be, hidden? Covered up? What could be hidden? Yeah, I mean, for, for all I know, she she happened to bang her shoulder blade when they were unloading the van. Maybe she's going up on that luggage rack, maybe up on top of the van, maybe. But I got to tell you, as a scientist, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to explore it. I'm going to try to marry it up. I'm going to see if it's a pattern injury. I want to see if there are other, other strikes or points of impact on the body that might be consistent with that sort of thing. I want to understand that. Again, it's not our job as medical legal. We got to figure it out. You got to, to charge you gotta anybody it. or to search for justice or all these. I have to, and I have to, I have to turn that data over to the prosecutor and over to the investigator so they can make a decision on what to do. And that decision has not been made yet, but there is right now a search for Brian Laundrie that is still taking place. Joseph Scott Morgan with us. He'll remain with us as we shift the focus from the homicide investigation to the search for the man who has a warrant out, a federal warrant for his arrest. For
For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. This search for Brian Laundrie has, has taken on a life of its own. And you've got uh, Dwayne, the dog Chapman on the case, but you've got people um, calling in tips from around the country, different places. I want to focus a little bit on, on the timeline and a couple of areas, because that's sort of been the, the focus of all of this. And what we do know is that September 6th through the 8th, there was a family camping trip down at Fort DeSoto. Uh, Brian Laundrie was there with his parents and then apparently his sister and his sister's family came for a couple of hours or for a, free, for a few hours on the 6th and spent some time with them. They did some s'mores and then the sister and the sister's family left because their kids had school the next day, but Brian and his parents remained there. The next date that is significant is the 14th because that's when the parents say, uh, Brian went by himself hiking over to the Carlton Reserve. And then on the 17th is when they uh, inform police that they don't know where Brian is and they tell them that on the 14th he went to the Carlton Reserve. Okay, that's, that's what we have uh, in terms of a timeline. So the, the search is focused primarily on that reserve. Um, there's been a lot of talk about Fort DeSoto. I don't know how much searching is going on there. I think Dog Chapman's been down there. Uh, and then there is a third spot as well, which is the Appalachian Trail. Because if you go on his Instagram, you can see that he has an Appalachian Trail t-shirt. Uh, friends of Gabby have come forward talking about how he has been there before and is quite comfortable there spending time by himself there in the past. So that's kind of where we are. I've spoken to um, someone who believed they bumped into him uh, at the Appalachian Trail. It may or may not have been Brian Laundrie, but this witness was convinced it was after uh, speaking to this individual who was in a car who was lost and seemed a little disoriented, disheveled, um, and something was going on with this person, so much so that the, the witness uh, called it into the FBI and to the locals, uh, and then we tracked him down and talked to him. But uh, putting all that aside, Joseph Scott Morgan's still with us. Um, what do you think, let's start with the timeline. Which dates are more significant to you? Uh, September 6th through the 8th, the family camping trip at Fort DeSoto, or um, the 14th when his parents say that he went for this hike by himself over at the Carlton Reserve? Yeah, for me, Ben, I, I got to say, uh, what's what's key here is going to be the trip to DeSoto. I think that that's that's everything because uh, there's no way to really validate this trip out to out to the reserve. You know, for all I know, they might find him out there. But, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to say that that's um, it's not a wild goose chase. You have to explore everything. But, you know, DeSoto really, really intrigues me because you have the you have the ability to put into the water there. They were in camping spot one. Again, you and I have spoken about this previously um, on air uh, television, and you know he had the ability to put that put a vessel into the water there. I'm thinking maybe a kayak and get out to those little islands that are sitting out there, you know, just off, you know, because it's a beachfront. The section one is a beachfront, you know, where they went and you know and they went out there. So 
the DeSoto, the DeSoto thing is really intriguing to me. And this is why. If you can make it out to those little keys and kind of cool your heels for a little bit, you got a wad of cash in your pocket. The next thing you, you can do is get back in your kayak or whatever it is you're traveling in out there in the water. And you can make your way to St. Pete. You can make your way to Tampa. And guess what's there? A huge homeless population. So, you know, when you begin to think about that, it, how easy would it be to blend in to that, to that population? You know, people are thinking about all these exotic locations and everything. I don't know what their resources are. I don't know if they have a friend that has a shrimp boat, for all I know, down in Sarasota. All right. And they hopped on a shrimp boat and he went to Cuba. I, I don't know. I, you know, but for me, just being kind of a practical person, that's something else. I got to say something else. I know that we're talking about this relative to uh, the Florida situation, but you, you'd mentioned the trail, the Appalachian trail. And, uh, you know, I, I worked, uh, I was involved in the investigation of the Olympic park bombing. Okay. And I was at the ME's office in Atlanta that time, uh, during that time, he ain't no Eric Rudolph. All right. Eric Rudolph was a former member of the airborne army. Uh, he, uh, you know, he had some understanding of the wild from just a survival, you know, it, it, but I have to stop you there, Joseph Scott Morgan. He, he, how many yoga poses could Rudolph do? I mean, Brian Laundrie is a yogi master. This guy, I got to tell you, he, he's he's a kid that's living off his parents. He he ain't Eric Rudolph, you know, and Eric Rudolph evaded capture up there, uh, you know, for five years. Yeah, and that's a fascinating story because the person that actually found him, he Rudolph was actually doing dumpster diving. I think it, I might be mistaken. I think it was in Murphy, North Carolina. It's on a Sunday night. Who dumpster dives in Murphy? You know, a fine place. I love Murphy. I you know I've been up there many times. Uh, but, you know, you just don't see people dumpster diving up there. And some deputy drove by and wound up finding him. This, and that was after he had run out of resources. Uh, laundry is not. And he had planned that, right? Yeah. And Rudolph had planned yeah, all and this out. It was, it was a different situation. Yeah, it is. And, and look, you and I have both been to the Blue Ridge. We've both been to Smokies. This is, this is a harsh environment for, for even the most resolute and, Getting into this time of year, leaves are dropping, everything's slick. It's always wet up there, as you know. Um, and you really have to, you know, brace yourself with resolve in order to survive in those hills and hollers up there. And it ain't easy to get by. Could I see him dumpster diving in Tampa? Yeah, I could see him dumpster diving in Tampa. I could see him blending in in the homeless population in Miami, maybe. But the the thought that he's up, you know, he might be on the Appalachian Trail. I don't know. But I think this, the, the thing that I think I was looking at the mileage yesterday, you have to cover that mileage from Tampa to let's just say it's Brevard, North Carolina, which, you know, kind of it's a it's a hub. It's kind of approximates that. So if you go from Tampa to Brevard, you're looking at almost 700 miles. Man. Well, what conveyance did he use to get up there? You know, did did he hotwire a truck? This guy didn't strike me as somebody that can hotwire a truck and steal a truck. Yeah. You know, people are talking about white trucks. You know, they see these people. And I don't listen. Everybody's hyper vigilant right now. Everybody is. So, you know, you're walking up down the trail. You see some guy. And it's like, well, everybody's wearing a, a rain jacket and wearing a ball cap. They might have scruffy beard. Uh, they might have tattoos and piercings. 
this guy's got very specific identifiers on his hands. You know, his I think a couple of his ears are pierced and all kinds of things like that that you look for. Um, people are hypervigilant. So he's going to be popping up everywhere. That's just the nature of the beast when you're doing one of these searches. So what, what you're telling me is there's a more likelihood of him evading um, people and being caught yeah. by sort of hiding in plain sight in a place that's more populated than being in an area like the Appalachian Trail or yep. on, yep. you know, on one of these little islands somewhere in a kayak where he's got to figure yep. out some way to eat and to find water. And and when he finds water, it can't be in a plastic bottle because he will not drink water out of a plastic bottle because he, he loves the earth. He's an environmentalist, uh, Joseph Scott Morgan. And I don't know... Um, how much you've dug into him, but you know, he had very strong beliefs there. So when he dumpster dives, he may actually be separating the plastic from the paper yeah. uh, from the aluminum well, old. While, while he's in there looking for food, which would probably be vegan. I gotta, t I gotta tell you, you know, when those old hunger pains start and your, your belly starts rumbling your, as they used to say, when your, your belly starts touching your spine, you'll eat just about anything. And he has to find, food he has to find water these things to survive on it's very easy to be very comfortable and make those kind of proclamations about how environmentally friendly you are when you're being chased by the fbi and not just the fbi the group that i love the u.s marshals when you're being chased by those guys you have to find a way to get by and survive there you know all of this other nonsense is it ain't worth the gunpowder to blow it to hell you have to you have to get by, you have to evade, and you have to survive off of what you can find. The trick is, what kind of resources does he actually have access to? Is he walking around with a pile of cash in his pocket? Because right now, he ain't using plastic, dude. No, he does not you know, like plastic. I, I he does not like plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and despite no, the fact... No, he doesn't. Despite I, the fact that he's been yeah. charged with using someone else's debit card, right? That's that's the charge that he's facing right now. He is, he's... Yeah, Gabby's. He's yeah. anti-plastic. So... How do you think he gets he gets found here? Does is it will it be um, he gets into trouble doing something else? Will it be uh, a citizen spots him and and maybe detains him? Uh, he's caught on video. Um, he slips up in a communication with a family member. How do, how do you think is the most likely scenario that he's found? Yeah, I think uh, the two things that you just mentioned, I think the slipping up with the communication of family, because he, in my estimation, at least, he is he is family dependent. OK, I think that he has dependent. He's still living at home. You know, that Mustang is not his. I don't even know if he owns a car. I have no idea. All right. Uh, I think that that's going to be one of the, the cues that we're looking for here. And also, uh, this guy ain't streetwise. If you go back with my with my scenario where if he's blended into a homeless population, he's trying to make, he's going to wind up not, he's going to wind up underestimating some of the streetwise people that he comes across out there. And trust me, if it's a homeless population, they have graduate degrees in being streetwise. They'll sniff him out in a second. If any of them have paper on them, if they're dealing with a court issue or whatever, first thing they're going to do is say, they've hit the lottery here. All they have to say is, look, guys in my camp, he looks just like this guy. What are you going to do for me? So that would be a very dangerous place for him to be. But logically, you would think because you can go to the mission and get clothes, you can get food, bowl of soup, 
maybe if you, you know, endear yourself to somebody, they'll show you where to go dumpster dive. That's eco-friendly. I have no idea, but you know, you, you're, you're thinking about those sorts of things right now. I don't know. The FBI might know, but I know this, I hadn't seen him in steel bracelets yet. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't manifested himself. So until that day happens, all of this is going to be a speculating, but I just, I look, I'm starting to look at probabilities now where, where could he be? Did he have the means? Did he have the mode in order to get away from this place? And, you know, I'm thinking boats, I'm thinking cars. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that without drawing attention to yourself? Well, the, the one thing though, when you look at, go back to the original timeline is that Nobody is really thinking about him until September 11th. That's when this first becomes a story and it starts to bubble up. So if we go back to that 6th through the 8th time frame down in Fort DeSoto, it does give him a little bit of a head start. And then he's not reported missing by his parents to police. And, and the real search in earnest for him doesn't really start till the 17th. Right. So that also gives you a little bit more time. I think most of us presume that he was in the house the whole time, yep. just hiding out. And his parents were ordering, you know, Grubhub sushi or whatever they were eating. Right. And but he if, in fact, he was, you know, gone on this somewhere between the sixth and the eighth, then he has a little bit of lead time to get somewhere. And when no one's really looking for him or knows who he is. Yeah, and that you know that would facilitate his ability to put as much space and distance between him and and whoever. And I would think you know, and again, just spitballing here, speculation. Um, that would you know, I, this is my thing. If if in fact his parents are involved in spiriting him away, I have to really wonder how you know how fully aware and engaged is this middle-class family and how, how aware are they of what you're going to need in order to survive on the streets or make it to a foreign country? Do you have a passport, uh, you know, making all of these plans, you know, going, going down the road, you know, I think a lot of people have made, uh, made hay out of, out of the idea of them going to remember, they took the trip to the public library and it's been speculated that they were going in there to use uh to use the computer, you know, the public libraries have. And, you know, I, you know, I've been to Sarasota before. They got many fine public libraries there. Why, why in the world would you go to Orlando to use it or wherever it is that they went to the public library? You know, I, I don't know that they were going to go look for, you know, Anna Green Gables or anything there. You know, maybe they were out in Sarasota, but they go to, they're heading up to Orlando, by the way, guess who else was in Orlando? That's where they were headed to meet up with, uh, with their attorney. So, you know, you begin to think about all these things. How sophisticated are they in order to facilitate all of this? It's not like this is a military operation, Ben. You know, uh, you know, are you are you really cued in here to what you need to survive logistically and being able to make plans out on this timeline? Or do you have that kind of sophistication? I don't know. Maybe they do. For all I know, both his parents are Green Berets, but I doubt it, you know, and <laughs> and I don't know that they passed any of that along to him. You know, how is he going to survive um, out there? I just I don't see him surviving out there for a protracted period of time without a considerable amount of help. You know, they've made a big deal about how outdoorsy he is and he loves to hike. Well, you know what, dude? I like to hike, too. And I like to camp. 
But that don't mean that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to survive for a protracted period of time without having food sources and without having some kind of currency to get by on. And you know what? I, I'm walking. And and his picture is everywhere. His picture is like yeah. everywhere. Everyone has seen it. His pictures uh, and the story is everywhere. It has broken through. Uh, Joseph Scott Morgan, yep. always great to get your insight. Don't forget, folks, he's got his own podcast. You can get more JSM on body bags. Uh, appreciate it, and I'll see you real soon uh, on the show. Thanks so much. Hey, there you go, Vin. Thank you. When we come back, folks, I'm going to take a look at what I believe is the smartest thing and the dumbest thing that Brian Laundry has done from a legal sense. Don't go away. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So I want to talk about what I believe is the smartest thing and the dumbest thing that Brian Laundrie has done. And all this coming from a legal perspective. We know already he's facing charges for the debit card, improper use of the debit card. So that's, that's, that's a problem, a legal problem for him. And obviously what everyone's looking at is the homicide investigation into Gabby Petito. So if and when there are any charges related to that, and, and perhaps even the, the, the charges that he's already facing, he's really taken two actions. One is, is brilliant, and it's what every criminal defense attorney wants you to do. And the second is going to create such a problem at trial for him. And what I'm talking about first is he hasn't said anything. He's remained completely silent, right? It's gotten people angry, infuriated. I mean, people are livid. And, and it's because of his initial silence about the disappearance of, of Gabby Petito. Didn't say anything to anyone. Didn't say that she was missing and didn't say where she was, didn't say the last time he saw her, didn't say a word, remained 1,000% silent. And that was the smartest thing he could have done, okay, as a criminal defendant. I'm not saying it's the smartest thing you could do as a human being, but as a criminal defendant, because he is a defendant now, he's been charged, he's been indicted. So remaining silent, and, and you'll hear it night after night on my show on Court TV, all the criminal defense attorneys I bring in, and then you see the way it plays out in trials. Like, if you say nothing, that can never be used against you. Your silence. You said nothing. A, a prosecutor can't get up and say, well, his girlfriend went missing, and he didn't say anything. He remained silent, ladies. No, that's a constitutional right. To remain silent. And, you, and you, if you're a prosecutor arguing about someone's silence who's on trial, you're in trouble. Your case is in trouble and, and you may get sanctioned. The uh, defendant could be set free. Um, there's a whole list of things that are going to happen. So we stay away from that. I'm a former prosecutor. We stay away from mentioning anything about the defendant not talking. I mean, you just, there is a, that, there is a bright line that you don't cross and you stay away from it because that is a constitutional right, and that is where uh, you run into big, big trouble. Now, the other thing that he's done is he's hidden. He's run away. He's fled. Now, this can be used against him. Flight. 
There is an instruction that judges give juries in many cases where you have defendants or suspects who have fled. That flight can be used as evidence of consciousness of guilt. Takes you right into the mind of the criminal defendant. And, and getting into the mind of the criminal defendant is something prosecutors always have to prove. It's, it's the intent. What is going on in their mind? What are they thinking? Why are they doing what they're doing? And when you start to have evidence of consciousness of guilt that gets the stamp of approval from the judge through the instructions, this is prosecution gold. So while in the short term, running from authorities might be, you know, okay, they, they, can't, they can't charge me if they can't find me. Right? You can't put me on trial if you can't if you can't get me into custody. Well, when they do get you into custody, that will then be used against you. And it becomes an incredibly large hill or mountain um, that prosecutors will use and that the d- defendants have to figure out how to explain. Now, when and if he's facing charges related to the homicide or even the charges related to the you know, the debit card, There has to be an explanation to the jury, some reasonable explanation as to why he ran. And inevitably, what criminal defense attorneys say is, well, he was scared. He didn't know what to do. Okay. (laughs) It never works, but you can argue it. I mean, because they have to say something. They can't. They can't. The defense remains silent on that issue because it's, it's, you know, it's a big part of this case now. It was a big part of, 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 what this is all about. Like, why would you run away? Why would you hide? Why? Well, it's evidence of consciousness of guilt, and the jury will hear about it when and if there's a trial here. So the smartest thing that he did was say nothing. The dumbest thing he did was run away. If he had just stayed put and remained silent, it's not an easy case for prosecutors because you can't get up there and say, well, ladies and gentlemen, he lied about this and he lied about that and he said this to investigators when we know that it's not true. No, can't do any of that because he just never said anything. It Trust me, as a former prosecutor, when you have a defendant who has made zero statements, it makes the case infinitely more difficult to prove because you've got to prove state of mind of the defendant. And if you don't have the defendant saying anything, how do you try to prove their state of mind? Well, now you can through the consciousness of guilt of his actions of running away and hiding from law enforcement. All right, folks, I'm Vinny Politan. We don't do this just on the podcast. We do it every night on my show, 8 to 11 on Court TV. It's a network. We cover the nation's biggest trials and biggest true crime stories like this one, night in and night out from 8 to 11. Um, Also, please check the show notes uh, uh, of this podcast and all the other podcasts so you can get a fuller picture of what we're doing at Court TV. And if you have a digital antenna and, and you can't find Court TV, please rescan that antenna. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.